and the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Welcome everyone to episode 16 of the Higher Calling podcast presented by the Avondale Church of God. We left off our last episode talking about Jesus Christ and the new covenants, perfecting, being the end of, resolving, or fulfilling the faith of all who had faith in God at the beginning of and during the old covenant or the law. Hebrews 12 is a chapter of self-reflection, and we're going to spend some time thinking about what our personal motivation is for searching for God, and after finding Him, continuing the fight of faith. Some key points we'll discuss are the great cloud of witnesses, benefits of chastening and a personal relationship with God, how our faith in God's plan can help us stay on the straight and narrow. In the opening passage, we read about a giant problem. A giant was taking up space that God gave to Judah. He didn't belong there. He was loud, scary, and was trying to take over. And his goal was to take the people of God hostage. Well, how does a circumstance like this come to pass? 1 Samuel 17, 13. And the three oldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. Verse 16, And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. So we set the scene here. Think of these 40 days to represent a long time. Time enough for David's three older brothers and indeed the rest of the army, even Saul the king, to become accustomed to the problem. And the problem as part of the environment, it's just how things are thinking of it as normal, and perhaps giving up hope that things could ever be different. Time enough for their faith to be affected. We know this story. David gets sent by his dad, Jesse, to inquire of the health of his brothers. And as he comes, he sees the giant, is offended that something so vulgar and obscene could be tolerated in his precious land of Judah, and would speak evil against God, scaring God's people and threatening their peaceful way of life. This land of Judah was hard-fought ground that they shed blood over. They had long sought for a refuge to worship God and raise their children on, to grow old and be buried there. Holy ground, now blighted by a giant problem that many people just thought of as normal. 1 Samuel 17.26 And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Come to find out, giants aren't great pets. 
they stink, they take up too much space, and in their own words, they want to destroy everybody, make the people servants and slaves to their giant problems. David was an outside observer, spent his time far away from the drama, and when he came close and heard what was going on, he saw the giant for what it was and called it a reproach. We all need to take stock of our spiritual experience and identify the giants that are stomping around, obvious, stinking, and dirty, and see those giants as a reproach. Bad habits, attitudes, tolerance of friends that aren't interested in pleasing God, and, and ask God for help to clean up Judah. 1 Samuel 17, 28, And Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. <laughs> Eliab was around the giant long enough to be affected by it, around the other folks that had seen the giant come and go, morning and night. They woke up in the morning with the giant stomping around, went to bed at night with him roaring in their ears. They were all scared and feeding each other's fears. Misery loves company. And if they were all collectively putting up with this giant, then the shame and reproach didn't feel quite so bad. When everyone else is doing it too, it might feel like socially acceptable behavior. When at one time, wickedness was shameful and people used to only do it behind closed doors. Thank God for a Bible that helps us to recognize a giant reproach when we see it. Balanced against the Word of God, the reproach of false religion sticks out like a sore thumb. It's not popular these days to call a giant problem for what it is, a stinking ugly reproach. There are churches out there that let you have your giants and your religion too, but know this, that the giants are running the show out there. This podcast is trying to encourage all of us to hold up truth in our communities, to encourage you to teach your kids to value the Bible standards so that they too can spot a giant problem when they see one. David's response to the giant problem, verse 46, This day will the Lord deliver thee unto mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And here's the result, verse 57. As David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Complete victory over the giant. Freedom from tyranny and oppression. Free to go about the business of service to God again. So let's carry this thought into Hebrews chapter 12. David, as a young man, was taught values of faith in God. He had a heritage and legacy of faith that helped guide him into service of God. As we spoke about in the last session of Hebrews 11, God gives all of us that measure of faith. And it can be cultivated and passed from one generation to the next. For those of us that may not have a mentor or someone reliable to act as a role model, there are historic figures and scriptures to act as a proxy, as a substitute. And of course, Jesus Christ himself, who interacts in a real and personal way with us. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Well, what is that cloud of witnesses? Chapter 11, there's numerous names of faith, names of people of faith who are recorded. They were provided a promise of someday a Messiah would come to put everything right again, but never in their lifetimes realized that fulfillment. They lived, fought through various persecutions, served God with, with all their faith, following the promise and the law of God, and they died without having realized the Messiah coming to fulfill the law. And the last verse in chapter 11 says, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Perfect being the fulfillment or the completion. And that is faith lived out. They didn't have yet the answer to their promise, but they still stayed true to God. Let me give you a current day example of someone who carried the torch of faith and handed it to the next generation. On this podcast, we try to provide the best audio quality. However, this recording is pulled from a cassette tape, probably dubbed a copy of a copy, but originally recorded in 1974. Do you know that you have asked for the costliest things ever made by the hand above? A woman's heart and a woman's life and a woman's wonderful love? Do you know you have asked for this priceless thing as a child might ask for a toy? Demanding that others, what others have died to win with the reckless dash of a boy? You have written my lesson of duty out, manlike you have questioned me. Now stand at the bar of my woman's soul until I question thee. You require your mutton shall always be hot, your socks and your shirt be whole. I require your heart to be true as God's stars and as pure as his heaven, your soul. You require a cook for your mutton and beef. I require a far greater thing. A seamstress you're wanting for socks and shirts. I look for a man and a king. A king for the beautiful realm called home, and a man that his maker God shall look upon as he did on at the first, and say it is very good. I am fair and young, but the rose may fade from my soft young cheek one day. Will you love me then, mid the falling leaves, as you did among the blossoms of May? Is your heart an ocean so strong and deep I may launch my all on its tide? A loving woman finds heaven or hell on the day she is made a bride. I require all things that are grand and true, all things that a man should be. If you give this all, I would stake my life to be all you demand of me. If you cannot be this, a laundress and cook you can hire and little to pay. But a woman's heart and a woman's life are not to be won that way. This was someone from my parents' past, whom I never have the opportunity to meet. His life of faith still lives on in the memory of those who knew him, and in the values that he held dear. The reading of this poem, A Woman's Question, written by Lena Lathrop, 
was recorded live as my grandfather officiated a wedding ceremony. The original poem book that my grandfather owned is still in our family, underscored, highlighted, bookmarked, as those values contained were fundamental in my grandfather's life. So reflect on those who have been a positive influence in your life, perhaps a relative or some role model that has affected you for the better. Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. This is the ultimate role model, Jesus, having been persecuted for righteousness sake, having done no wrong, yet continued to fulfill the plan of God. How are we doing? How does your life measure up to the example of faith from this cloud of witnesses? And what would that role model say if they were around to talk to you about your life? Perhaps they would scold you for allowing giants to roam around. Perhaps they taught you better and you've allowed the beautiful land of Judah to be polluted that they work to keep clean. Has a cloud of witnesses tried to pass on values and virtues that are no longer evident around you? Do you use religion as a social exercise? Are you a Baptist or Methodist because your grandfather was, yet your spiritual life doesn't have the testimony and experience of God that prior generations had? Now, maybe you're in this scenario that prior generations of your social circle, they don't have a reputation of godliness. You may not have personal knowledge or familiarity with someone who followed God, was living a life of faith. Gideon, one of the famous Israelites we read about in chapter 11, had that problem, but he looked to the example of godliness in the law as his role model and listened to the voice of God to shape his spiritual identity. Let's read a couple verses from Judges 6, uh, verse 25-26. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock, in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. So, we know the story. He cut down the idol worship environment that his father had set up, which was contrary to the law of God. These groves of trees with altars to idols in them, that they spent time worshiping instead of worshiping the true God, and they knew better. And so Gideon's father was doing these wicked things. Of course, a father's a a role model for all all of their kids. Gideon, being the son, opted to not follow after his father's idol worshiping ways and pursue true faith as lined out in the law. So back to Hebrews 12, verse 5, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? 
For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. This holiness is the standard. It has always been, even from the Old Testament to the New. One example is in Zechariah chapter 14, a prophecy of the fulfillment of Jewish law as the Messiah comes. It says, in the evening time it shall be light. Or, as if time expressed as a single day, towards the evening time, or last days prior to the end of time, full understanding of the truth will be had. The result of that is holiness under the Lord, as expressed in verses 20-21. It's a really good Bible study here, in parallel with some chapters of Revelations, by the way. Perhaps we'll get there someday in this podcast. Uh, but holiness is the standard. Everything in our life needs to be dedicated as holiness unto the Lord. As it said here in Zechariah, even the pots in the tabernacle, as those verses described. And if not, when our life is held to the standard of holiness, some things may be identified as unclean. Perhaps not yet sin, perhaps a giant problem that could destroy our faith eventually. Our conscience is great at letting us know about it. Back to Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. To be exercised thereby means going through the process of being chastised or scolded. And the result of scolding oftentimes is to exhibit shame, perhaps a sense of defeat, some humility, and to have body language of someone who was just scolded, to let our hands fall to our side in defeat, uh, to not stand tall. And verse 12, 13, it says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. The appropriate response to punishment is to fix the problem, to come to your preacher or pastor, explain the situation, have them pray with you. If that person in authority is also guilty of those activities and represents to you that sin and shame is something you have to live with every day, then you need to find a new church. You need to find a new pastor who will uphold the values in the Bible. And we'll get more into that in Hebrews 13, where it talks about those having the rule over you. Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. This is a pretty neat passage, and it completely destroys the Calvinist doctrine of eternal security and predestination. And if you can't tell by any of the previous podcasts, we love to expose false doctrines for what they are false. Breaking the story of Esau down, we know that verse 17 ends with this, he found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. It feels like someone who is sealed and doomed to eternal damnation. However, a summary of Genesis chapters 25 through 27 thus follows. Isaac falls in love with a beautiful young lady named Rebecca, who subsequently gives birth to two twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, whom we know later of as Israel, a prophecy was fulfilled. Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Okay, Esau was the older, 
and should have had the benefits as such, the holdings and name of the family. But an event happened in which Jacob, the younger brother, bargained with Esau, who happened to be starving and faint with hunger, that Jacob would prepare a meal, a bowl of lentils, as it were, and give to Esau only if Esau would give his entire birthright to Jacob. A strange bargain, to be sure, but Esau consented. To add insult to injury, later, as their father was on his deathbed, Jacob impersonated Esau, received the blessing that was supposed to belong to Esau, and Esau, coming back into Isaac's room later in the day, asked for the blessing, only to be told that it was too late. There's nothing left to give. The Calvinist Baptists would love to say that once you repent and get saved, heaven's eternally a reward, even if that person goes back to their old life in sin. They also say that some people are never going to seek repentance, and those evidently were not predestinated to make heaven their home. So this is Esau making a bargain with Jacob and giving away his birthright. It was a intentional choice, and it had ultimate consequences. It had nothing to do with predestination. Even though there was a prophecy, the prophecy wasn't self-fulfilling. It was predicting uh, the future. And that came to be just like the prophecy foretold. It wasn't as if the prophecy uh, was forced to be to be the case. And I know there's a lot of discussion and intellectual, you know, philosophical discussion about self-fulfilling prophecies. Someone can know the future without forcing the future to become what they know it to be. And it's another sub-conversation of the whole predestination discussion. But in our scriptures, it's very plainly stated that one can fail of the grace of God when willingly giving into sin after being afflicted by problems in our life. The next six verses refer back to a story from Exodus when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God gave instructions for no person to touch the mountain unless they die. It explains that this mountain in the new covenant is Mount Zion. And we know that Mount Zion was a literal mountain in the area of Jerusalem that David's palace was built on. And when the first temple was built, the hill it was erected on was re referred to also as Mount Zion. As Revelation explains, the church of God is the new Jerusalem, and we are kings and priests. The temple of God is in our heart, the church of God being Mount Zion. It's a metaphor uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So verse 18, For ye are not come into the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Okay. Verse 23 is a reference again to the cloud of witnesses, the church, and spirits of just men made perfect or complete. And often the scriptures used to support the doctrine of full salvation. Just men or those who have been justified or made right through salvation. 
then made perfect after cleansing of the Holy Ghost as sanctification. And we've talked about that before as well. Verse 24 talks about Abel's blood crying from the ground to God. And metaphorically, the blood of Jesus also speaking better things. Well, what did the blood of sprinkling do in the old law? It cleansed, purified, and sanctified. It was a type of Jesus' blood. Okay, verse 24, 25. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Again, a reference of turning away from him that speaketh from heaven. Look, backsliding is a real thing. Your salvation is precious and not to be treated lightly because it can be lost. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. To understand this, the activity of shaking, chastising, pruning, is to remove dead, worthless, and wasted foliage. God is faithful to do this work. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Speaking of the the pruning, the trying, the testing that God is faithful to put all of us through before death comes and we're sealed to our eternal reward. And the trying and the testing times are there to help try, test our faith, and to build our faith. And so consider your Judah land. What giants are roaming around that shouldn't be there? You can identify a giant because you've been handed down a birthright of faith. You have access to an objective standard in the Bible that instructs us how to live properly. A relationship with God is obtainable and desirable. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse, purify, and make us acceptable in holiness. What are we doing with our faith? And can we hand it to the next generation as clean and pure as it was entrusted to us? Does the next generation know anything about biblical principles? Are they going to have empty denominational religion. What are we handing off to them? Something that's orthodox and dogmatic, but has no evidence of real faith? It's real challenging here. Well, with that, we'll wrap up this podcast. It's been a pleasure, and we trust that you found the discussion both challenging and encouraging. As always, thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or would like to contact us for any other reason, please visit www.csinning.com or email us at biblestudy at avondalecog.org. We love to hear from our audience and would be happy to further any discussion or pray for a need you may be experiencing. See you next time on The Higher Calling, presented by the Avondale 
Church of God.